Hello, and welcome to another mini-sode of Movies We Dig, a podcast about films, antiquity, and everything in between. I'm Christy Vogler. And I'm Hannah Bazinal. That's right. Hannah is now a co-host and a producer of the Movies We Dig mini-sodes. Everyone give snaps for Hannah. And today we have a very special guest joining us, someone extra special to me. We're going to be discussing episode five of Disney's Percy Jackson and the Olympians, a show adapted from Rick Rorden's 2005 book. Sorry, correcting ourselves after three episodes of this, The Lightning Thief. Everyone, please welcome one of my former students, Mary Willis. (laughs) I know, it's the awkward pause. I had that problem too. As always, we'll be conducting a shovel test of the series by giving a brief overview of the episode and providing some information on the ancient sources from which Rorden drew on to tell these tales. Once the season wraps, we'll have the whole regular crew in to do a full analysis of the series. All right. So as we always like to start off with all of our episodes, uh, we like to ask people if they dig it. But since Mary is joining us about halfway through the season, first, Mary, can you introduce yourself and tell us about your personal history with Percy Jackson? And then let us know what you think about the series so far. My name is Mary Willis. I'm a student at the University of Lynchburg. I started reading Percy Jackson when I was like nine years old. It's been a really big part of my childhood. And I've read most of Rick's books. I can't say all of them anymore because he keeps publishing more. So many. There's so many. It's ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, his books were really integral to my growing up as a kid, as a kid of undiagnosed ADHD. And as a queer kid in the closet, it was really a very important series to me. So and it inspired me to, you know, look into classical studies. And now I'm writing a whole thesis on ancient Rome. So I had nothing to do with that. Not true, probably, but <laughs> yeah. And so what do you think of Disney's adaptation so far? We're about halfway through now. It's I'm very particular about details, and I don't think they're getting the details right. Not in like in a way that it has to be right to the book, but in a way that they're using a lot of these cultural pieces of knowledge, like sexual assault and racial profiling, and they are not really doing it justice in a way. It doesn't offer much catharsis. It seems like the characters ignore a lot of the things that are happening to them. So I like objectively the aesthetic. The actors are fantastic. The casting up to episode five has been great, but it seems that the storytelling falls a little flat. That's totally fair. That's similar to some of the things we'd been noticing and saying. And I think some of that always just goes back to the fact that like this is written for middle mm-hmm. school, which is a really weird, nebulous age to write for. Especially like even the, the idea of like hiding the sexual assault, but like talking around it somehow without recognizing the fact that a lot of kids, unfortunately, by middle school have already been victims to sexual assault themselves. So like having adults talk around it still when they're so good about showing things of like undiagnosed ADHD and other aspects that they are allowing kids to see in these characters, but not not the painful things. I mean, that could also be incredibly triggering. Yeah, it could. To just just see like them just be like yeah i was assaulted on a kid show where they weren't expecting to have to like prepare themselves for that at least that's my take no and i i agree because it's like middle school is a hard age to do that right but a lot of times too is that when do you get taught the language to know 
that you're a victim and that that is what happened to you and you can seek out. And these are the stories that teach kids how to cope in a lot of ways. Yeah. So if you're not talking about it, then like they're not learning how to deal with their own problems in a lot of ways. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just think there's a time and place where and I don't think Percy Jackson is the time or place to be like, to like explicitly be like, I was assaulted. Like, But it's also like, it's also trying to deal with like racial profiling, right? Like we see okay, Annabeth that, being yes, racially profiled yes. in episode four. And so many kids deal with that. And if you just ignore it, then it's it's also very triggering for kids, right? They're seeing their problems on screen and they're not getting addressed. And there was there was a comment that Rorden had made about the cops on the Antrac, like because he's he, you know he's for promoting that he's on Threads, strangely enough. So this is where I get a lot of them. And he talked about like, oh, I read Threads, yeah, <laughs> I know, right? That's where I'm getting all my info. Anyway, he like talked about is like, oh, he thought the cops were so funny and he just imagined them like having a spinoff buddy cop show. And I'm like, excuse me? So tone death, Rick. So tone. Like every once in a while, he really, you know, and that was the same with the Medusa and the interview with that article. It's like there's just a little bit of tone death blindness that unfortunately, as a older white male, as our author and creator of this world is just not always going to land, unfortunately. So, and, you know, that being said, the interesting choice of Greek mythology, which is full of all of these really heavy topics, you know, the biggest one that we're okay with the society of children seeing is the concept of slaying monsters. Like you are still killing things, even if they aren't human per se. We are okay with the violence, the active violence, but we're not okay with some of the other stuff that could be triggering. So I'd like to clarify, I definitely agree with Mary on like the racially profiling stuff that needs to be addressed. Oh, yeah. I was thinking more about the assault thing, but the racial profiling thing. Yeah. Like, I know they're going to dance around it, but like, at least kind of dance around it instead of just pretending it didn't happen. Yeah. So Hannah. Can you give the audience a breakdown of what happened in episode five and let us know if you dig it? Episode five starts with Percy coming out of the water actually wet for some reason, which if you've read the books knows that's not, but whatever. They hitchhike with Aries, who buys them cheeseburgers, even though Grover's a vegetarian. Somebody give that boy a veggie burger. Then Annabeth and Percy are sent to retrieve a shield while Grover commits psychological warfare. Successfully, I would say. He does. That was such a good addition Mm. to his character. Best episode of Grover so far, which is like... Ooh, you disagree? They haven't been great before this, Mary. Don't give me that look. I I agree that Grover has been so looked over by this show repeatedly. It's like all of his little things that really made his character are totally ignored. I don't know if this was the route to bring him back. This is a very manipulative way to show Grover. And he's just not a very manipulative person. In the books, at least. I understand that, you know, shows and movies are going to change things. And if they if they're if they want to show that as Grover, then sure. But like in the books, he is just so kind. Like he manipulation is just not the first place that he starts. Even in the first episode where yeah. he is kind of manipulating Percy, he does lie to him in the books. He does lie to him in the books, um, saying that Miss Dawes wasn't there, but he doesn't do that yeah. thing where he betrays Percy to the principal. And so I've been kind of I've been iffy about the storytelling with Grover because he's such a great character. We've had mm-hmm. great moments with him, like with the consensus song. 
I thought that was fantastic. I thought that was a great look into who his character is and what his motivations are. And I just haven't seen that since that moment. Well, did you guys dig the episode? Oh, I did. I don't know. I thought Grover's like, I know it was manipulative, but I am a Slytherin. And you know what? I kind of like the motivation and the idea that like he's going to do anything to keep these kids alive this time. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, but I can see how that doesn't gel with everyone. Yeah, it was mostly I didn't really mind the manipulation until at the end. It was like, I know who stole the Master Bolt. And I was like, <laughs> are, I'm sorry, are we switching Annabeth and Grover now? Are they like... Are their attributes and strengths now reversed? I was just kind of really confused about that. He 100% thinks it's Clarice. Maybe. See, I'm just sitting here. I'm like, who is it, Grover? I'm excited to find out. I know who it's supposed to be, but I'm just along for the ride. And I think that's, I'm on Hannah's side that I I did enjoy this episode, but probably for reasons that are so different than your guys's, um, which we'll get into. But like, for me, I thought this episode is one that Grover shined, but it was kind of in a cringy way. And it wasn't because of the manipulation. It was because he was relating to Aries about war yes and like how cruel nature right. can be but also like it gave me very andrew tate you kind of vibes of like young boys who watch these figures is like oh yeah i know your greatest hits but i like your mellower stuff i mean that's just it like preteen guys the things they're exposed to on social media in particular and the way that they were kind of like framing Aries wars as like him being a rock star of some kind is like yeah, yeah, everyone knows me from World War II. Like, it was such weird vibes that I didn't like it. I didn't like the sense that even if Grover didn't really believe what he was saying, the fact that he still had this knowledge and understanding of what Ares was all about, because he did, he effectively connected with Ares on that level. And you can't do, you can't manipulate if you don't understand the person to a certain extent. That was kind of yeah, and there was there was no explanation about why Grover would be able to connect to Aries. Yeah, just so. just the idea that's like we're children of nature and nature's brutal. And I'm like, even if it isn't something he believes, it's making the argument that war is natural. And it's like, <laughs> no, it's not. It's exploitive, like everything else. The way though we wage war today definitely is, but I mean, in ancient times, war was very different. It was, so. and 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 no one liked Ares, and no one liked Ares' version of war. So, like, that's that's why this connection to it is really, I don't know. I just, I liked Grover had a more active role this time and he was contributing to the group and he was holding his own while they were gone. Like he was very much kind of showing the maturity he had in that group as having acted in the role of guardian, but it's still done in a way that like gives me a bad feeling. I don't know. I'm the odd one out here. I liked it. I just felt weird about it. I think they're trying to play on the fact that no one knows who the traitor is if you haven't read the books. To me, it never felt like Grover was actually being like, yeah, war. Like, I always I always thought that was like just like part of the manipulation. But the wars he does mention are all wars that were like fought because of a dispute with nature for some reason or the other. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you looked that up because I did not have the time to look up the wars he was referencing. Yeah, like the lobster war. Literally, lobster war. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It kind of gave me the idea of like the emu war in yeah, Australia. Yeah, that's what I was going to too, yeah. I was like, he would kind of be a fan of nature fighting. That would make sense. Yes, I just I was just like, I took it as, oh, he's getting inside his head, which I respect. 
Yeah. Like I said, where the problem is I'm coming from is you guys both have a lot of context from the books about who Grover is as a person. But for a newer audience, for a younger, like maybe middle school audience who hasn't read the books and this is their first introduction to the series, I I could see that being a misunderstanding because Grover's character hasn't been established in the same way that it was in the books. Like he's he's been weakly represented. Even at the beginning, like that was the one thing I didn't like was him gaslighting Percy in that principal's office thing. And I'm like, dude, not cool. Yeah, Yeah. I was really upset about that. I didn't like the snitch part, but you know what? If they're going to like, if they're going to have that in, I at least appreciate them committing. I don't mind changes in adaptations. I think that's the nature of adaptation. I don't mind changes in characters. Like in the books, Annabeth is very, like very respectful of the gods. She's like, yes, Aerie, sir. And she's very much not like that in the show. So I just like that, you know, if you're going to make changes to a character, just commit to the changes. Don't just like do a few tiny, small things that just stand out as out of character. Later. Yeah, I, th- I feel like Percy and Annabeth are still really solid as characters, just as far as I don't know how much they've deviated from their book counterparts, but I think they've been doing really well with their characters themselves. <laughs> Poor Annabeth. She's having a rough time of it. <laughs> the part of the episode that I was just like so done with was just the change from Annabeth and Percy getting caught in the net. The golden net is originally what they're caught in, in this trap okay. that Hephaestus laid out. And they changed it to Hera's golden throne because originally what Hephaestus wants to do is that he wants to embarrass Ares and Aphrodite. He wants to show them on TV. Like he has cameras that come out and they shine down on the, the people trapped in the net because he intended it to be Ares and Aphrodite. And she's like, oh, look at them. And it's supposed to be this like monitored moment. It's like exactly like the myth. And Hephaestus doesn't make a physical appearance in the lightning feet. We don't see him until Mm -hmm. the Battle of the Labyrinth. And he's described very differently. Like, I love the actor who plays Hephaestus. He plays Kane in Supernatural. Love that guy. However, that's just not what Hephaestus looks like. Yeah, but I read your description you pulled of Hephaestus and it's very problematic. Oh, yeah. Ab- absolutely. It absolutely is problematic. It's very much like, how can we represent physically disabled people in the most grotesque way possible? Yeah, so good change there. Because I, yeah, when you posted that description, Mary, I'm like, oof, there will be some complaints here, Mm -hmm. I think, if that is how they had depicted it. Yeah, so my reaction, I think I've shared for the most part, but like, I want to touch on a few other things before we really dig into Ares and Hephaestus, because I think they're kind of the main two storylines. And I think it's really interesting. I don't think it was intentional that Rorden picked them, but they're actually really interesting if you think about their relative positions within the Olympian pantheon. So we'll get into that. But um, I love the quick visual references to the fates. The little old Yeah, that's from the books. Bright pastels. Percy originally sees them when he's like getting off the bus before he even knows he's a demigod. He's getting off the bus and he sees like three little old ladies like knitting the world's largest socks. <laughs> really like that they color coded them and like even like they're all wearing Crocs too that match their color coding, which I think is really cute. But before we get into like Aries and Hephaestus, I do want to say that I agree with Mary about I do hate that they changed like the thrill ride of love because that's part of why the gods hate Percy because first of all Percy thwarted Hephaestus's trap a trap set for gods a demigod thwarted it and also it shows that Ares was too scared to go get his shield on his own it's a double whammy for embarrassing the gods mm. and it was supposed to be about like Aphrodite cheating on him I'm not sure why his mommy issues got brought into it exactly oh I got that I got that for you guys don't worry I have the explanation for 
that part of it. The removal of the humiliation aspect of the trap, I think is really interesting, especially if we think about it would have been the social, especially because we do get Percy the terrorist again, right? On Twitter. Yes, I love it. <laughs> X formerly known as Twitter. And that's just, I think that's the, the difference of the time period of when the books came out versus now and how problematic social media has been in terms of, you know, think about like what supposedly you're trapping them and doing them and then putting that on the internet. That is like a huge issue we now have with social media and the things that like things that go on the internet never really die. Is that something we really want to promote again in a Disney show geared towards middle schoolers? So, I mean, if they had to pull back on that aspect of it, I kind of understand if that's kind of their reasoning. I don't think Aries was meant to be like a, I don't think he was supposed to be like an aspirational character. Like, I thought it was funny that he was a Twitter troll. I did too. Okay, hang on. Wait, wait. This is, this is how we meet Aries. Give me a second. I'm just starting to fight on Twitter here. Nothing makes me happier than a good old-fashioned burn-it-down fight. Huh. Okay, done. So something interesting about the actor yeah. is that he's a pro wrestler. Yep. I didn't know that until I looked it up, and I was like, Ugh. I, Yeah, I only looked it up today. I didn't know that. Let me see. So his name is Adam Copeland, and he was formerly in the WWE from 1998 to 2023, where he performed under the stage name Edge, which is like, what, Aries? I would envision his wrestler name being to some aspect. Um, and then before Percy, he can also be seen in the 2017 series Vikings. So this is not his first acting role, per se. I kind of liked the choice of a pro wrestler as Ares, I, I must say. That was good. Yeah. yeah. I And like that's what's really interesting is like Ares is actually very difficult to pick out in ancient artwork mm. because he's mostly just depicted as a soldier and sometimes he's an, an older usually the older gods like poseidon and zeus are depicted as bearded uh, and they're a little bit more built and then you'll have the younger gods like apollo being like beardless youths and they're kind of the ideal male body and Ares is depicted as both and unless his name is like written next to him or there's other context clues like even his attributes are like helmet shield spear and you're like who's this dude and i was i was really curious with the the shield that sh they showed for aries has a boar on it and i'm like oh i wonder if like a boar is an attribute of his because it would kind of make sense boars are some of the most dangerous animals that um you would hunt back then and they were commonly caused deaths during hunts the caledonian boar was a labor so i was like oh that would make sense if like it's a no you guys know what, what animal he's associated with? Serpents and some breeds of owls. That's so funny because he was like, why does she talk I know. to like a, a feathered rodent? And I'm like, shut up, Aries. But yeah, in the books, uh, Ryrie describes like his animal to be a boar. And so digging a little bit deeper, what might that be related to is usually Aphrodite is always hot and heavy for him, but it's Aphrodite. She sleeps with who she wants. And once upon a time, she wanted a very pretty boy named Adonis. And in some versions of Adonis's death, Ares becomes a boar and gores him to death. And so that's where the boar might come from in this case. But in terms of ancient depictions of Ares, he is not usually associated with the boar, per se, which I thought was interesting. Ovid strikes again. Uh, question, do the fates come back? I no. would love to see more of them. They're very cute. Not in the lightning seed. Damn it. So I don't get to talk about Greek uh, concepts of fate until a much later date, apparently. That's fine. Something we're not getting in the show that I miss is like kind of how campy 
the books are. I miss it. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, Aries has these sunglasses because like his eyes are just pits of fire. And when you look into them, they get angry. And I know they can do that well because shout out to the adaptation of American Gods by Neil Gaiman. They turned it into a show. The Jin with mm-hmm. the fire eyes looks so fucking cool. They could have done that. Where's the comically large knife? Like, yeah, Aries threatens a waitress with a knife. Yeah. And it's like, oh, okay, we're going to replace that with a Twitter battle. And I was like, okay. Again, Definitely. smart move, I will say. Well, because his motorcycle is also described as having two gun holsters. Um, so And it's made of human skin. And it's made, yep. The leather. Rick Rorden. Okay, he Caucasian, was not aware of a lot of Caucasian shit. human skin. Wow. Caucasian he was not like aware of a lot of stuff um when he wrote that book but he was like it's got to be white bitches <laughs> this leather is made of white bitches let me be clear dang i was just gonna say that looks like the best tunnel of love ride i've ever seen in terms of the musical number choice and then the actual oh, yeah, ride aspect to it. <laughs> you guys i that was a punch to the gut when there's like oh i think i've heard this before and an orthodontist office i'm like that song came out in 93 and yet i know it's true yeah also that i watched that music video and i'm like this Mm -hmm. is hilarious (laughs) you should watch it there there is like he is actually singing on occasion to some renaissance busts of greek goddesses and then he is bitten by a vampire woman that's the dream yeah it's bonkers. It was the 90s, y'all. Well, I know I know. Mary had some questions. Like, there are some questions about this setup and this weird connection between Hera's throne and the trap laid for Ares and Aphrodite. Although it wasn't really clear, like, who the trap was laid for in the show. Yeah. Um, it does seem clear. I think it is interesting that, based on what you guys described in the books, like, it, it almost as if some of the myths are in the process of happening and which is weird to think about versus like this obviously happened a long time ago. You you guys want to know one really interesting thing is Hephaestus divorces Aphrodite. He has kind of a bad phase after the divorce, but then he remarries and has a lovely wife and many children. I thought what was really interesting, I mentioned this earlier, Ares and Hephaestus are both children of Hera and Zeus, kind of technically. Hephaestus supposedly is just, we talked about this last week of like the greatest fear of ancient men is that women would just learn to have children without men. And Hera actually does that. She does a parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis. It's a really hard word to say, but it basically means virgin birth, which is stupid. But anyway, move over, Mary. Supposedly Zeus gives birth to Athena all by himself, which is stupid that that's the interpretation made because he ate the pregnant mistress. So eats Metis, swallows her whole because he fears there's a prophecy that has been told that the child born to her will be stronger than him. How dare a child be stronger than him? Uh, so he eats her and then gives birth, of which Hephaestus is present for. He uh, gets to take an axe to Zeus's head in order for Athena to spring forth. And I don't think Hephaestus had any qualms against taking a axe to his father's head, as we'll learn. Axe to father's head, perfect birth, just a man, just a man accomplished the perfect birth. Men don't need women. So Hera's like, well, fine, I'll do it. And then she has Hephaestus. And it's really interesting because the only, the oldest descriptions of Hephaestus, his only abnormality was uh, like a club foot, basically. And Oedipus has a similar story. But because he wasn't perfect the way Athena was, she cast Hephaestus down from Mount Olympus and he was further injured. So it's not really clear if he has like even more injuries to his body 
versus just the single disability he has from his foot. Um, that's not really clear from the initial stories. There's also other versions of the story where Hephaestus did something to Zeus or a child of Zeus. And so Zeus got really angry and tossed Hephaestus out of heaven. So basically, both parents suck for Hephaestus. So he's not really loved. But Ares, we learn, is also, according to Zeus, and we get this directly from Homer's Iliad, to me, you are the most hateful of all the gods who hold Olympus. Forever quarreling is dear to your heart, wars and battles. So Zeus just comes out and, and says, it's like, I hate you the most. So like, they're both children of Hera and Zeus. And they get no love from their parents, which is interesting to think about that they're almost the most sympathetic to the demigods as a result of that. Like, they're doing the most to help them out as of right now. So I thought that was really interesting. Can I give you a spoiler? I saw the movie. I know what happens. No, you don't. Ares is the one who gives the Master Bolt to Percy. It's in the backpack he's delivering. <gasps> Oh, okay. Wait, why is he delivering he a backpack? He wants war. Oh, well, he yeah. Gets to, he gets to Hades, and Hades is like, hey, I, you have the bolt, not me. And then it's like, looks like Percy's guilty. Oh, okay. Although I do kind of have this suspicion that they're changing it in the show. Like, for some reason, I have, like, this feeling that they're going to go with Athena being the one who wants war. I hope not. I hope not. I don't know. They've been pretty heavy-handed about their villainy. Well, okay, well, Grover is like... I know that you found the person who stole the lightning bolt. And Ares does. In the books, he's the one who finds Luke and takes the the bolt from him. Hmm. So it looks like they're going to continue because they do give, I mean, Ares does give him the bag, right? So it seems that Luke and Ares are working together as they did in the book. So another one, another interesting connection between these two gods and why I thought it was Interesting choice to have them paired here. Both actually, I mean, Ares is up for debate, but like unlike most of the Olympian gods, there are no stories of them directly attacking mortals for anger, which is really interesting to think about. Like uh, Hephaestus just straight up like does a bunch of favors for mortals. And Ares is just like, now nah, I'm good. I just want to fight wars. If wars are happening. We're great. And so like you could argue that's pretty bad for mortals, but like you don't get these vengeful stories that you do from a lot of the Olympians like Athena in contrast. Okay. Can we talk about how Poseidon pays child support one time and then Percy is like, maybe my mom wasn't that great. And then Percy's changed his tune. He, he wasn't even there himself. Percy, yeah, calm down. That, that was a very quick. And yet at the same time, I I get it because of how young he is, because it's like, maybe my dad really does care about me. Isn't that something you would hope for as a kid? And you finally get yeah. a sign that that might be the case. They are showing the growth of like they're showing Medusa's storyline through Annabeth's growth. And the first was her hearing from Echidna, basically the same exact story that Medusa told. Right. Except now it's happening to her. And that's her like, hopefully her aha moment. And then this moment with Hephaestus and the speech just kind of like she maybe didn't realize what she had experienced in that moment. And like seeing this quick change in Percy, that was kind of my thinking, too, is like part of that quick change, I imagine, is the fact that Annabeth has been sitting here the whole time. It's like my mom cares about me. Like she just shows it in a weird way. Like that's the gods. That's just how it works. And so now he's starting to come around to Annabeth's way of thinking. But after what she's just experienced, she's like, is this really like what I want? from my mother 
And so she, in this episode, kind of renounces that. Like every, like we're seeing that slow growth through this kind of Medusa planted the seed. And then hopefully, yeah, episode seven, there's going to be a payoff in both of like a completion of Annabeth's growth and relationship to her mother. And then like what happened to Medusa as a result. Maybe we will finally get to see the kids be sympathetic to Medusa and what they did to her. I think so, because Hephaestus implies that Athena set up the trap and the thrill ride of love. Like, he's like, this is cruel, even for Athena. And then he talked about how, like, Annabeth will get to walk out of there as a hero who makes her mother proud, and Percy will no longer be a problem. So they kind of imply that mm-hmm. Athena is involved in this in some way. So that's that's why I'm questioning her involvement in the lightning bolts stealing yeah i agree and that brings me to like this dynamic set i have one more i have a clip to play so this is the dynamic that we had hinted at earlier um of grover and aries in the diner so i'm gonna play that really quick was she always like that who your sister athena what do you mean always making things more complicated than they need to be so people will think she's smarter than you thank you (laughs) I can't be the only one who sees it, right? No, not at all. It certainly feels that way sometimes. And seriously, she's the smart one? Really? If she's so smart, explain the owl. She talks to it, like, all the time, this fat, nasty little feathered rodent. And it's like her best friend. And we're so sure that she's a genius and I, no owl, am not. Totally. It's like people only see what they want to see and ignore anything at all that doesn't fit the story they like to tell themselves. Exactly. Like you being the one to find the lightning thief and not her. So that was really interesting because Grover's kind of calling out certain traits of Athena there that, yeah, she does seem to be like this really seems Athena focused, even though like Percy keeps trying to throw it at Poseidon. But like, no, this is all about Athena right now. Which is so interesting because the book, it's more focused on Aphrodite. Um, Mm -hmm. there's more of a presence of Aphrodite, well, in the specific chapter, not in, like, the overall book. But, like, this whole chapter is about Aphrodite and Ares. And they've managed to totally turn it around to be about Athena. Mm -hmm. And then they used Hare's golden chair, which you said that you had a theory about that. I do. Okay. Okay. So here's the story. Here is the 411 on how how Hephaestus gets married to Aphrodite in the first place. Because, like, how does that happen? Well, in this version of things, Hare is the one who threw Hephaestus off of Mount Olympus when he was born. So to get back at her, he makes the golden throne. I will say, cool, cool visual effect for like freezing Percy to the throne with the like golden cogworks. Oh, that was beautiful. Which I think goes to Hannah's point. They totally could have done flame eyes on Ares easily. So anyway, he's pissed. He makes the golden throne for Hera. I love that they included peacocks on it. So you know it was very much for her. And she's stuck. And everyone's like, okay, we got to get her off. Got to get her off. No one can get her out. So they're like, okay, we need a Festus to get up here and like fix this. And the idea was that whoever who can bring Hephaestus back to free Hera gets to marry Aphrodite. And Aphrodite agrees to this because she's already involved with Ares. And she assumes Ares is going to be the one capable of bringing Hephaestus back. So Ares storms down to the forge uh, and Hephaestus is able to fight him off. Hephaestus is kind of a badass, actually. Like, he does a bunch of stuff. So he successfully fights off Ares. Ares does not win the contest. And so the next person who tries is Dionysus. But Dionysus is cool about it because... What he does is he goes down and like, hey, Hephaestus, you want to get drunk with me? And he's like, yeah. So they start drinking. 
And Dionysus is like, so this is what's going on on Mount Olympus. You know, if you come voluntarily, then you could probably be the one to marry Aphrodite. And Hephaestus is like, that's a great idea. So he drunkenly is taken up to Mount Olympus on a donkey. He frees Hera. And before he makes his decision on Aphrodite, Poseidon actually tries to convince him to demand Athena's hand in marriage because Poseidon is pissed off at Athena for the rivalry at Athens. But apparently Hephaestus goes with Aphrodite. Aphrodite is like really pissed off because her boy toy who was supposed to like win this contest She's now married to Hephaestus, so she just proceeds to continue to cheat on him. And that's when Hephaestus then creates the golden net to capture them. Then the divorce happens. But you guys, that's not even the worst part. Because after his divorce, he he tries one more time to get back at both Aphrodite and Ares. At the wedding of their child, Harmonia, which is the daughter of Ares and Aphrodite, he builds a cursed necklace and gives it to Harmonia as a wedding present. So honestly, Hephaestus is one of the most vindictive of the Olympians, which makes this line even harder to believe. Some of us don't like being that way either. You're a good kid, Annabeth. I'll put in a good word with your mom for you. And I'm like, a good word with her mom? My petty king? Like, again, nothing. Does nothing bad to mortals. Like, he loves his mortals. He loves his craftsmen. But understandable. He definitely got um, the raw end of the deal. But again, Ares never really did anything all that bad. Ares actually did nothing wrong in this whole situation. <laughs> Imagine overall. saying that. Ares did nothing wrong. Right? And so the connection in the show that I see between both the throne, because like it is one's whole storyline, basically, right? The Tunnel of Love. It is the story of the two women who were supposed to love him his mom and his first wife, betrayed. And it's like a full-on, like, almost, um, I don't know, monument to that, right? Like, womp, womp. I yeah. kind of liked how it was put together because it's it's definitely Venus holding up or it's it's Aphrodite holding up the shield because you can see the shell from the Venus de Milo. You can see the shell that she's standing in. And then, again, the throne is very clearly Hera's because of the peacock. So it's tying those two stories together, which is really, like... And that's the whole point of the Tunnel of Love, right? Like, it's his horrible love story beginning to end all in one intricate little trap. And you know what? I applaud it. I, I liked it. So that's interesting. I think it's hard for to understand for like middle schoolers or even me. I was like, oh, why is this happening? Yeah. I, I was also like, why is this about his mommy issues? I thought this was about his wife being a cheater. Because the reason he ended up with Aphrodite is because he trapped his mom for his mommy issues. It always comes back to moms with men. Mm -hmm. So for real. So for Freud real. is rolling in his grave. Freud loves the Greek gods and their shenanigans and like yes. all the psychoanalysis I could perform on this family. <laughs> Are there any final thoughts you guys want to share on this episode? These are nitpicky things, but they... Okay, so in the book, like right after they get done um, at the St. Louis Arch, they're like figuring shit out and they go to a, like a car wash and they're like, okay, it's time to IM camp and see what's up. And Percy's like instant messaging. And they're like, no, iris messaging. So they make a rainbow and they toss a drachma into it. And then they say like where they want to go to and it shows them like a little ripple in the rainbow nice. and that's how like they communicate over long distances and if we don't get like that if we don't get that relationship between percy and luke then it doesn't make the betrayal hurt as much because he's always messaging luke like it's like he's the only one there <laughs> for some reason <laughs> and it really like luke is always like do you 
did you, do you have the shoes? Make sure that you're wearing the shoes. So it's like, so it's like, what, what's going on? How are they going to build up Luke as the traitor? Also, they still haven't mentioned the name of Percy's sword. Percy's sword is named Riptide. Oh, I think I remembered that. You finally got seaweed brain. We did get seaweed brain. Which I did learn. The Italian version is Testa d'Algi, which is actually algae head. Oh, that's kind of cute. Yeah. Yeah. Any other nitpicky things? I'm curious. Okay. Something I forgot to say last episode is that in the books, Percy's jump is a leap of faith. He's like, I will finally have faith in my father. And in the show, Percy's like, he has no faith. He's just like, fuck it, I'm dead. He's also not over the river. So like that leap of fate would not go well. I still say fuck <laughs> geography. And I know for like wardrobe reasons, but like when they finish getting the shield for Ares and the books, they get like all decked out in water park gear. Nice. Those ugly shoes that like you can put your individual toes in and the shirts and the shorts and it all says, like, it's all like, water park stuff and it's ugly <laughs> and i get they don't do it because of costuming reasons but it still would have been funny like you could have pulled that off yeah all right well um my takeaways i'm glad grover had a chance to shine in this episode i just again wish it wasn't in a such a way but i'm not as i i don't know grover the way you two do so like i wish let him talk to nature let him talk to the I dog know. Wait, it's like he still has not saved an animal yet. Uh, yeah. Like I said, I liked Ares and Hephaestus combination here, but I think it was not intentional. But it's like, this works in a lot of ways because they're very similar in ways you wouldn't think of. And interestingly, um, the actor who plays Hephaestus did have a stroke in like mm -hmm. 2017. He's like half paralyzed, I think, or he needs a cane. So the cane prop is like, he actually needs it. Like he is actually physically that disabled. Is, oh my God, yeah. really? So I think yeah. that was really neat. Wait, that makes me so happy. We never get like actual physical disability representation. Yeah. Oh, I love that. that that's also it's like why, why Hephaestus is such a cool, cool figure to think about. Like we are told at birth, he was born with a, a physical deformity, a disability. And to have that represented in one of your gods, who is also like, very much revered like he is a craftsman the stuff he creates is like like homer goes on pages and pages about the shield he makes for achilles like it's impressive what he does and like i said he fights off Ares on his own be like mm -hmm. bitch you can't touch me good try and so like i think that's really cool to think about we do have some ancient representation of disability and i think that's why i'm really glad they changed the description of hephaestus from the books because yeah that was so problematic yes it was i do wish we still had hephaestus as like a blue collar worker though that's what i i that's what i enjoy i like yeah needs more camp yeah I, it feels too cotton candy but and not campy enough yep. if it's going to have these nuanced representations and these complex conversations but by oversimplifying it it's just not going to work. But damn those visuals. Good work. Special thanks to Mary for joining us today to discuss this episode. Shout out to Hannah for hosting and producing the minisodes. Next week, we'll finally have Colin in our clutches. Uh, I mean, he'll join us to react and analyze episode six of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, where everyone is now wondering if Lin-Manuel Miranda will perform Poker Face as Hermes. As for you listeners, you can find us on most major streaming platforms as well as moviesyoudig.com. Please like, review, and subscribe if you like what you hear. You can also follow on Instagram, Facebook, Blue Sky, under some variation of the handle at Movies We Dig. Let us know if you think Aries is toxic or simply misunderstood. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye.